This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. This episode contains explicit language. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. And welcome to the first episode of October, or what we like to call around here, Rocktober. I'm going to be doing this and probably the subsequent episodes in this series a little differently for a couple of reasons. As you might already be able to tell, this is going to be a little bit uh, more casual. And the reason why I feel like it lends itself very well to this subject, which is rock and roll mayhem. Rock and roll mayhem, rock and roll stars, rock and roll music, all kinds of music, actually. But I am a big rock and roll girl from way back. A lot of you guys who have been following the podcast for a while know this about me. I was one of those people that spent my money on, um, you know, the, the latest album that came out or a cassette or CD, depending on your time of, uh, of when you came up in uh, your music loving days. And was the one that was always in line for the concert tickets um, back when you had to stand in line for concert tickets (laughs) and have been to see so many bands, anything from ACDC to Metallica, Van Halen, um, Depeche Mode. Oh, my gosh. I can't even think. Uh, So many, so many. I have a list. I I have a list somewhere of all the bands that I've seen. You know, different different kinds of music, and I've had a, a great time. I still do uh, when I can catch some of my favorite bands. Uh, of course, the ticket prices have gone up a little bit, a little bit over the last 20 or 30 years, uh, which, you know, sometimes makes it cost prohibitive. The last concert I really wanted to see was going to be near San Jose, California, my hometown, was the Red Hot Chili Peppers, because I have never seen them live. And uh, I could not swing those tickets, man. It was just out of control. So <laughs> it was at a venue that, uh, you know, is known to be a little pricey. So I had to skip that one, unfortunately. But I have seen many, many of my very favorite bands. So I've been very, very lucky. So what I do in October and have done for a couple years now, I get to research and uh, talk about some of my favorite things, which is music, live music, bands um, in a true crime genre of this podcast. So it's been great fun, and I hope you guys will find these episodes as fun as I find making them for you. So I'm going to start off with this one, and this is one of these bands that, uh, of course, is iconic. It's also a band who I kind of came into, you know, my adulthood with a little bit, and that was Guns N' Roses. And also, Guns N' Roses is one of those bands, and specifically the lead singer, although there was a lot going on with uh, other band members as well, which I might touch on a tad bit, but this is really going to be about Axl Rose, because we have known from the beginning of Guns N' Roses, Axl Rose to be a little bit, shall we say, volatile. (laughs) So in this episode, you're going to hear a little bit about Axl Rose and his antics on and off stage. And also, you're going to learn a little bit about his background, which I found fascinating because I really didn't know a whole lot about his upbringing. Maybe you guys did, but I did not. I have very little time to watch like behind the music kind of things, even though I find them fascinating when I am able to watch them. But uh, so maybe you saw that on something like this. I would imagine there has to be things like that out there about Axl Rose and his life because he's just a a very unique and special person. Okay. (laughs) 
So first of all, I'm going to go into the band itself and give you a little snapshot of their trajectory of becoming rock stars. Guns N' Roses. Let's give you a little bit of background about them. Oh, gosh, there's so much to say about them, but let's just kind of go into where they started. So by 1984, Izzy Stradlin and Axl Rose were playing together in a band that they had called Hollywood Rose. And Izzy knew LA Guns member Tracy Guns. When uh, LA Guns needed a new vocalist, Izzy suggested Axl Rose. This led to the merging of the bands Hollywood Rose and LA Guns and became Guns N' Roses. I didn't know this. I did not know that. I thought that was so cool when I found out how they got their name. I had no idea. So that was pretty cool. Um, but by June 1985, the band consisted of Axl Rose, the lead singer, Slash, everybody knows Slash, Top Hat Slash, the lead guitarist, Izzy Stradlin, the rhythm guitarist, Duff McKagan, the bassist, and Steven Adler as drummer. So, of course, Guns N' Roses came up by playing the Hollywood club scene, the Troubadour, the Roxy, all of those places, of course, where these bands would get scouted out. So in March of 1986, the group being, I mean, because, you know, they're amazing. You guys know Guns N' Roses, very talented people, very talented um, and different, different sounding, different look. I mean, Axl Rose himself, come on, you guys, like <laughs> he is somebody you could watch all day long back in those days. He just is, uh, is very unique. So Geffen Records signed them in March of 1986. They had actually been scouted by some others, but they got a, a pretty big advance, like 75 grand in 1986 is a pretty good, you know, chunk of change. So they took it. Meanwhile, at the same time before that, the Axl Rose was working odd jobs to support himself as, you know, starving musicians do. He was a night manager at Tower Records uh, and video store, remember video stores in those days, on Sunset Boulevard. In 1987, which is so crazy, the debut album, Appetite for Destruction, which, of course, anyone who was into rock at that time knew was like the album. It sold over 500,000 copies, half a million copies in the first year. And by today's, it has sold over 30 million copies worldwide. It's, it's, it's insane. It was one of those that I remember, you know, getting it as well and just, just like, wow, this is amazing. These are great songs. This Meanwhile, as all this is happening, of course, they're starting to tour. They're doing, you know, things to, uh, you know, promote their records and all of this stuff. And very early on, we, we see that uh, there's some problems with the lead singer, Axl Rose. He has a bit of an anger issue. He has a bit of a hair trigger temper. And nobody ever knows what he's going to do, which brings people into the seats for sure, right? I mean, of course, you're, you know, you want to go to a rock concert. You don't want to just sit there and, you know, very politely and, and clap when it's over, of course, right? It's going to be that, you, you know, you really want to get into it. You want the energy of a rock concert and the band and the whole thing. And believe me, Guns N' Roses brought that and they also brought the drama. Because Axl Rose, as much of a showman as he was, was also a loose cannon, Let's just keep it straight here. <laughs> Bit of a loose cannon. Nobody ever knew what he was going to do. People were there for it. They wanted to see what is he going to do? What's going to happen? I'll give you some um, examples of that. Here's one thing you're going to learn about Axl Rose. I'm going to tell you about his background in just a bit here. And, you're, and it's all going to come together if you don't know about his background. He is very averse to any kind of authority. He does not like rules. He doesn't like following rules. He doesn't like being told rules. He doesn't like anybody looking at him cross-eyed who might tell him a rule or say something he cannot do. So this, of course, as you can imagine, is going to be a bit of a problem 
when you are touring and you have tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of people coming to watch you. And of course, there has to be rules. There has to be order. There has to be, even in a rock concert, there has to be order. Of course, we love the crazy rock concert energy, but we don't want to get trampled to death. We don't want to get, you know, mauled. We don't want to get elbowed in the face when somebody's trying to get in front of us. There has to be some order. You have to be able to get all those people in a venue, out of a venue, move them where they need to be, make sure they're not, you know, drinking or taking some substance that's going to kill them or make them very sick or whatever. I mean, there's all kinds of things that have to happen for a concert or any, any kind of event with that many people coming together to go off and people can be safe and have a good time and the whole thing, right? That's just, that's behind the scenes. We don't see that. We just go and, you know rock out. So anyway, so some of the things that happened, 1987, an Atlanta concert, Axel Rose assaults some security guards. You know, he doesn't like people in his way. I don't have the whole story behind that, but there's so many of these that I couldn't really just give you all the details. In 1988, at a Guns N' Roses show, because it can be chaotic, riots nearly break out in two shows in New York. So One of the first tours, just to get an an idea of some of Axl Rose's behavior and things that happened on on tour and things that happened at the band when they were playing live, is their first extensive tour was in support of the debut album, Appetite vs. Destruction. That was a 16-month-long tour, and they were going to be playing dates in Europe and the U.S., as you do and when you're a band. This was throughout uh, the second half of 1987. During the 87 tour, drummer Steven Adler, who I'll tell you a little bit about later, Broke his hand in a fight and had to be replaced for eight shows. And the next year, Adler went to rehab. So, of course, had to be replaced again. So, again, going back to that 1987 show in Atlanta where Axel Rose assaulted these security guards, he was actually held backstage by police because he was so out of control. The band had con- had continued the concert with a roadie performing the lead vocals. So, <laughs> And then something more tragic than that happened at England's Monsters of Rock Festival which was held in August 1988 at Castle Donington in in England. Two fans were smashed to death when a crowd of between 110 and 120,000 people, that number changes depending on who you uh, believe, began slam dancing and, you know, doing the whole mosh pit thing during uh, the song It's So Easy. And uh, the crowd kept surging forward. And as we know, that could be deadly. And that's what happened. People towards the front of the stage got smashed, trampled. One got suffocated death and one got trampled. The band would say that there were no no rules for crowd control at that venue. There was no rules for the capacity of the size of the crowd. Like I said, it was a Monsters of Rock thing. So it was one of those really big ones that were outside and they had multiple bands and all that. So they blamed it on on that as well. But some people also say it's the energy of the people coming together and um, sometimes it just gets out of control. I'll tell you about somebody later who who has a good point to make about that, about who's in control of the crowd. So... In 1991, the band released their newest recordings as two albums, Use Your Illusion 1 and Use Your Illusion 2, and that was in September of 91, and that hit number one and number two immediately, right? So this was like a huge, huge deal. They had sold over 770,000 copies and 685,000 copies in the first week, which is insane. And so they had already started to embark on this Use Your Illusion tour 
which would later be dubbed the longest tour in rock history. It was a 28-month long tour, 192 dates in 27 countries, which is, seems insane. This, of course, as you can you you would imagine, is it's it's just going to be a lot of stress on the band. It's going to be a lot of different venues, a lot of things going on. And meanwhile, by this time, because of all of the antics that have happened at other Guns N' Roses concerts, live concerts, they have already been dubbed the most dangerous band in the world. That's what they are being called. Um, of course, the reputation maybe have been solidified by that, um, the deaths in the Monsters of Rock, which of course you know we can't necessarily say was their fault but you know it was one of those things there was just constant chaos and things happening also by this time we know that there was a lot of stress and tension in the band because there had been a lot of turnover in the band Stephen Adler was a drug addict he was addicted to cocaine and heroin and remember Stephen Adler was the band's drummer and he had had multiple arrests he had stints in rehabs he had missed missed lots of shows where he had to be replaced by other people he finally got fired in 1990 because he just couldn't get it together. So in 1991, we go on the Use Your Illusion tour with all the tension, all the history, everything that's going on at that time. Because there's a lot of you know stress and tension in the band already, things going on, they've already have this reputation of showing up late to start their concerts, people waiting you know, lots of time for things to start. Axl Rose getting on the stage and maybe like, you know, dilly dallying around or <laughs> getting angry and, you know, stopping in the middle of, of songs to rant or, or do something else. And so, you know, like I said, for some people, this could be entertaining, but for others, it was just annoying. You know, you pay money to go to a concert and, you know, you have this going on. A lot of that happened as well, because like I said, there was tension within the band. So all of this now is going to come to a boiling point in what would forever be known as the Riverport Riot. So I'm going to tell you about what happened on the Use Your Illusion tour on the night of Tuesday, July 2nd, 1991. And this was in Maryland Heights, Missouri. The venue was called Riverport Amphitheater. Before I get to that, I'm going to tell you a little bit about Axel Rose because I find his story very fascinating and it will inform you a little bit about his behavior and how all of this unfolded. Okay, who is Axl Rose? Well, you got to imagine he wasn't named Axl Rose at birth, although that would have been really cool. He would have had really cool parents if that had been true. So he was born February 6, 1962 in Lafayette, Indiana. His real name was William Bruce Rose Jr. His parents were Sharon and William Bruce Rose. His mother, Sharon, was only 16 years old and still in high school when she got pregnant with her baby, William. And his parents separated when he was just two years old. So his dad apparently had a reputation himself as being kind of a juvenile delinquent. The uh, relationship between his mother and father was volatile, to say the, the least. And after they separated, his father actually abducted um, baby William, two-year-old William, and allegedly, according to Axel Rose later, also molested him. His father then disappeared from his life. After his biological father had left, his mother remarried, and his stepfather was Stephen L. Bailey. His mother then changed his name to William Bruce Bailey, so she gave him her new husband's last name. Axel believed that Stephen was his biological father and didn't find out until he was 17 years old by going through insurance papers that he found at his parents' home 
that uh, this man, Stephen Bailey, was not his biological father and who his real father was. That is when he began using Rose as his last name because that was his last name at birth. Axel Rose has a younger sister, Amy, and a half-brother named Stuart. Some of the stories that he will tell about his upbringing, he said that he and his siblings were regularly beaten by their stepfather. His stepfather was a Pentecostal preacher. The stepfather was also very controlling. He made the family live under strict religious rules. No music was one of them. No watching anything that even implied sex on television or anything like that in the home. He wasn't allowed to listen to any music. He got the idea from his stepfather because of the way he treated his mother and just the way he talked about women in general, that women would lead you to sin and they were evil and that kind of thing. So he, there's, you see all these kind of things forming that are going to be forming in this young boy's impressionable mind that's going to make up his, his, his psyche. Pretty much everything was bad. Anything outside of just you know strict adherence to what a stepfather considered God's word was not allowed, was bad, was evil, was, you know, something that was going to make you a very bad person. They had to attend church, you know, several times a week. When he was five, William, he's still William, started singing in the church choir. And he even performed at services with his siblings under the name the Bailey Trio. So obviously he already had, you know, ability, a musical ability at the time, but was only able to indulge in it as part of his religious upbringing. But he continued with music because during high school, he participated in the school chorus and he also studied piano. After he discovered the truth about his father and that Stephen Bailey, who was abusive to him and basically told him that, you know, he didn't care about him, didn't love him, nobody loved him, all all of these terrible things, um, he became very, very rebellious and he was often in trouble at school. Then you start to see the problem with authority figures and all of that that's going to continue throughout his life. He was arrested more than 20 times during his youth. He served up to three months on charges of public intoxication and and, uh, battery. And the police threatened to charge him as a career criminal from all of these times they had to arrest him on these mostly minor infractions to destruction of property and, and sometimes assaulting people. After the Lafayette police, this is what he says, they had an eye on him all the time. He couldn't do anything. He couldn't go anywhere. He felt like, you know, they, they were gunning for him to lock him up and put him away. So that's when he moved to Los Angeles, California. He arrived in Los Angeles. He was in a short-lived band for a little while with another guitarist. But then he formed the band Hollywood Rose, like I said at the beginning of the, of the episode with his friend Izzy Stradlin, who had also moved to Los Angeles, and the guitarist Chris Weber. So this is when they put out their demo and they started recording as Guns N' Roses. And at this time, he's only 20 years old, so very, very young. And also at this time, he legally changed his name to W for William Axel Rose. There's a few things to know about Axel Rose, though. He didn't like school. Again, authority uh, following rules was not his thing. But he was very, very bright. He placed always about the top 3% in placement tests at his school. He dropped out, though, in the 11th grade, and he went back briefly, but then dropped out again in, in during his senior year, so did not graduate. He always loved music, especially, you know, new music, people doing something different. He loved to hear new sounds. And the only way he could do it, because music wasn't allowed in his home, was to have his friends play the albums, the new albums they had bought over the phone so he could listen to them over the phone. So he was very, very tightly controlled at home. So you can see where that problem with authority 
really solidified in his you know younger days. The allegations about his physical and sexual abuse as a child, he uh, revealed these in 1992. So later on, he didn't he didn't um, talk about these earlier. And he called his stepfather, Stephen Bailey, one of the most dangerous human beings I've ever met. He even got his sister out of the home as soon as he could. And she came to L.A. with him. She became his um, a fan club uh, like president or the person who ran the fan club and went to, co- you know, was there at the concerts with him and things like that. He wanted to get her out of that home. He also would, would admit that he had problems with women because of the w- way he was taught and the messages he got about women from his stepfather. He said, I've been hell on the women in my life. This is, he told this to Rolling Stone. And he said, and the women in my life have been hell on me. He would say that he, you know, hated his mother as well because she didn't protect him. And she chose her husband, his stepfather, over her children and didn't protect them. He did know that he got out of control and he didn't know exactly what always set him off. But he said when he would get really stressed, he said, I get violent and I take it on on myself. He used to cut himself with razors. And, you know, we know this is a as a response, a dysfunctional response to having a lot of inner pain. But then he said that realizing having a scar was more detrimental to him than maybe kicking in a, a speaker or destroying a guitar. And he said, I'd rather kick in my stereo than cut my arm. Um, so this is where now the, the rage starts he starts uh, directing the rage outward. And of course, he has lots of ways to do this because he is in front of a lot of people and have a, with a lot of stress, especially on this very, very long tour that I told you that they embarked on. They use your illusion 28 month long tour. The Riverport Amphitheater is in Maryland Heights, Missouri. At that time, it was a brand new outdoor concert venue. It cost $12 million to build in, in the early 90s, late 80s. It opened on June 14, 1991. The Use Your Illusion Tour was just the third event held at that venue. So it's like brand new. The only concerts that had been before Guns N' Roses was Steve Winwood, Jimmy Buffett, and Mannheim Steamroller. So those, you know, a little bit more tame uh, concerts, um, possibly. <laughs> Jimmy Buffett's pretty laid back, I think. Uh, you may disagree. So now we're going to jump to July 2nd, 1991. People were very excited about Guns N' Roses coming to this new amphitheater. 17,000 tickets were sold. This was a 20,000 seat venue and Skid Row opened for the band. And Skid Row, the people, you know, people that went said they did great. Uh, of course, you know, with Sebastian Bach and, you know, all that Skid Row, right? Skid, you know, the thing is Skid Row, I think they get a little bit of, um, I don't know, reputation as kind of glam rock or something like that. But I've gone back and re-listened to Skid Row just recently, and they, they got a lot of hits, man. <laughs> they got a lot of hits, uh, and, and I appreciate that. So, you know, it's, it's, it's fun. It's fun music. And they're very talented, very talented. Then Guns N' Roses took the stage. Everything seemed to be going fine. At one part of the concert, though, Axel Rose, he starts talking to the crowd. He's going to tell a story about uh, being molested while he was in St. Louis, which, of course, we know is in that area. He's near St. Louis, Missouri. This is what his venue is. Rose tells the crowd, quote, St. Louis, I'll tell you a little something about this city. I was 17 and I left Indiana because I had a disagreement with one of the juvenile detectives. I had about 35 bucks and I took a bus to St. Louis. That was cool. I had about half a joint and I went down by the arch and smoked half a joint. And then I went out by whatever freeway I was closest to and I hitched a ride with some air conditioning repairman in a van. 
It all seemed pleasant and safe enough, and nothing really much happened. I was like exhausted and beat, and never been out of my fucking town on my own in my life. And we went to some fucking hotel, and I crashed out, and this guy crashed out, and I woke up, and this guy was trying to F me. I don't care. You can be male, female, you can be an effing dog. I don't care what you are, man. That shit ain't right. It took everything I had not to slash his jugular vein. End quote. Okay. So you can see he's already in a mood. And this is what he would do. This is the thing, you know, if you watch any of his interviews and things, he gets something in his head, something from, you know, pain from his past, some trauma from his past. And he locks onto it and he starts to spin out. And this is what I think happened at this concert. He's recalling being in St. Louis where he is now playing to 20,000 people at this great venue, people cheering for him and all this. And he is now fixated on this terrible memory from his past. And he is also connecting it to St. Louis. I think that that played a part in what happens next. So they're almost all the way through the end of the concert. It's now just after 11 p.m., they were playing their 15th song of the set. So they've been playing for like almost almost close to 90 minutes, which is typical for rock concerts, about 90 minutes long. They were in the middle of playing Rocket Queen. And in the middle of the chorus, Axel, and you can watch this, probably link this in the show notes. I know there was a, a person there at the time of this concert who was filming a documentary, so was authorized to film this and, and caught some of this on camera, as well as did some other people that were not authorized to have cameras. So in the middle of the chorus, you see Axel, who's wearing uh, short white shorts and a fur coat, pointing to someone in the crowd, right off the stage in the crowd. And he sees this man, apparently in the crowd, this person, this, this young man in the crowd who was taking photos. Now, this person, um, his name, and he, he plays a part in this story, his name is William Stevenson, but he goes by Stump or Billy, Billy or Stump. Then you see Axel, after he points to the sky a couple of times, he starts yelling into his microphone, uh, hey, take that, take that. Now get that guy and take that. He's yelling to the security guards, basically telling them to get this camera that this young man, well, actually, he's like a teenager, I believe, at the time, um, taking pictures of, you know, the concert. And this is a problem at that time because, of course, this is pretty much, you know, pretty close to pre-cell phones or whatever. We don't have a lot of that going on. But one of the things that would happen in the shows is people would bring, used to bring in the day, you know, video cameras and things like that. And they would, you know, videotape the show and they'd bootleg it. They'd sell it. You know, they'd sell it, uh, you know, their car trunks or whatever they did. And bands didn't like this because sometimes they would put out their own concert videos or, or just, you know, it's just disrespectful. There's uh, rules about it and, you know taking pictures or videos at venues, you know, you guys know this. If you've been to any kind of live event, it's just not allowed. And 99.9% .9 of, you know, cases, I guess somebody doesn't move fast enough because a minute later, security would say they didn't even see yet who he was pointing at. He would say later that he had told them several times. We don't know if that's true or not. And possibly it was. So Axel now doesn't want to wait. He yells, I'll take it, goddammit. You see him flip off his hat and in the same motion, jump into the crowd. I mean, he just launches himself over the crowd at this guy and dives into the crowd. Now he kind of disappears. You don't really see. You see people kind of moving. You see people kind of, you know, gathering in that area a little bit, but you can't really see what happened. What happened is that he tackles this guy, a stump. And Axel and Stump actually flip over a row of seats. And these are seats that are bolted to the ground. At the same time, Axel was, was hitting Stump and demanding that he give him the camera. 
So he's basically fighting with this guy. Now, security, of course, are going to, they're jumping in there because Axel, you know, he could get ripped apart. He could get, you know, punched. He could get, this is the, the main singer of the band. They can't have him getting hurt. And they need to get him out of there, too, because they don't know what else could happen. I believe he does grab the camera and the security starts, you know, leading him away. This guy, Stump, says, I didn't even know what happened, man. Something hit me. I fell over. You know, we're kind of grappling. And all of a sudden, he goes, I, tr- I finally was able to turn my whole body to, to kind of, you know, move. And he's just gone because I guess the security guards had pulled him off and pulled him away. So Axel had actually been punched and one of his contact lenses flew off during this brawl. So he was angry about that. As he's being walked away, Axel, you see this on, on video too, is he strikes one of the security guys. They get him back on stage and out of the crowd. And once he's back on stage, the next thing that's on video, Axel grabs his microphone and he screams into it. Well, thanks to the lame ass security, I'm going home. And then he just slams the mic down onto the stage and then just takes off, storms off the stage. The band's kind of stunned. Like, I mean, they're kind of used to it, but it's also, okay, now what do we do? Do we... Do we wait? Do we play? Do we, you know, it's that kind of thing. After just a, a couple of beats, a slash, the guitarist tells the audience, he just smashed the microphone. We're out of here. And he takes off and the rest of the band follows him and walks off the stage. Um, the medics now are in the crowd trying to help Stump. He actually um, ruptured a, a, a disc in his back when he got flipped over the, uh, the seat is what happened. So he couldn't even really move. He was in, he was in pain, couldn't move. Of course, the crowd, I mean, think about it. You're a rock concert. What do you do? You're waiting. You're waiting. You're waiting this out because, okay, he got pissed off, whatever. That's Axel. That was crazy, man. Everybody's waiting, right? And they figure he's going to be out in a minute. They're gonna, the band's going to come out in maybe, you know, 5, 10, 15 minutes, something like that. He's going to calm down, come down. They'll finish the last song. They'll do their encore, and then it's all good, right? But nothing was happening. They're waiting, waiting. Nothing happens. And the crowd starts to get restless, so they start throwing cups, bottles, you know, booing, you know, all that kind of stuff. What a restless crowd would do. Remember, they're almost all the way through this concert. So what happens by the time you're 90 minutes into a rock concert? You're going to have a lot of people who are inebriated, who are, you know, they were just in all this high energy. They're all amped up. They have no patience for this. So more things are being thrown and general, you know, low level mayhem, but a little bit of chaos. Let's put it that way. Uh, a member of the security team makes a statement over a mic and says, everybody needs to calm down for the show to continue. Meanwhile, backstage, Axel's backstage, he's not getting ready to come back on stage. He is still pissed. He is ranting. He is raving. He's out of control. You know, the first thing he did is he went into his dressing room, slams the door shut, and the person who's standing outside, one of the security team, can hear him just destroying the inside of the dressing room because this is something he does when he gets angry. He just... Just, you know, just destruction. Appetite for Destruction, perfect name for their first album, right? Totally. Uh, And they had to be talking about him. At this point, you know, they can't get him to come back out. It's just like, it's crazy. And the band's manager tells the venue staff, look, the show's over. Axel's not coming back, dude. Just, you need to shut it down. Shut it down. Turn on the house lights. You know what happens when the house lights get turned on. You're like, oh, man, it's over. Are you freaking kidding me? Even when it's been a great show and you've had two or three encores, when the house lights come up, it's always disappointing, right? (laughs) It just always is. Already a little restless, waiting for something to happen. House lights come up. Oh, no. That was like, slowly I turn, you know, like this. they just like lost it. So then, then it's on. Then it's on. The crowd starts chanting, 
bullshit. And then, and then just, it just goes insane from there. The destruction of this venue is almost unprecedented. This went on for three hours, three hours. Think about it. You got 20,000 people. Now, of course, not everybody's rioting. It's just going to be, you know, a handful. But you've got, let's say, I don't know, what, what do you have there? I think they said something like 30 on the security team and like, you know, 30 others, other kind of, you know, staff or whatever. They can't control even a thousand people, right? Um, much less multiple thousand, maybe. So cops are called in. Now, once the cops come in, it makes it worse. It makes it worse because now people are just like, okay, yeah, now this is it. They just double down on being destructive. But this is, this is really bad, you guys. I mean, you, like I said, you could see some of this video. People start to rip out the seats. Now, these seats, first of all, they're new. Very nice, very nice seats. And they're bolted to the ground. Four bolts in each seat, you know, in, through metal plates into the concrete, right? Ripped up. So, you know, there had to be some force and people doing, you know, really, really dedicated to uh, getting those seats. Not only do they rip them up, they start flinging them like Frisbees. Multiple people got hit in the head, stitches, concussions. You know, I mean, it's, it's terrifying. It could have been very deadly. Um, the video screens, people were climbing up because these video screens are the, in those days were the type that uh, it's kind of like a, a, like a thick fabric, you know, I, I don't know how to explain it. Well, you know what I mean? Like the screens are, they're, they're like on, um, they're like on a, like metal kind of uh, frames, but they're like a thick fabric. That's the screen. And of course there's a, a, a post, there's wires that go up to it, you know, that is connecting it to, you know, power sources and below. People are climbing up, people are swinging on those, the cables, they're swinging on the cables, they're climbing up the cables, they're ripping those video screens down. Those got ripped apart. Other people stormed the stage. Now the band, remember they walked off, there's still equipment up there. There's amps, there's guitars, there's speakers, there's, uh, you know, all kinds of stuff. And they're just grabbing this shit. Some of them are people are destroying it. Some people are stealing it. You know, it's just, you know, you're talking tens of thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars worth of uh, equipment. As a matter of fact, there was uh, an amp that belonged to to Izzy Stradlin. <laughs> and uh, Sebastian Bach, he tells the story later, uh, he's the singer for Skid Row, that they found Izzy's amp like two miles away at a bus stop. <laughs> and the next day and he said I guess like somebody stole the amp and went to go catch the bus and maybe the bus driver said dude you can't bring that on here <laughs> so they found it the next day just sitting at the bus stop and they were able to you know at least uh, recover that but this is how crazy this went start taking all this equipment police officers had come already and some of the people the the employees I mean they're getting hurt they're they're you know the ones the security and other people who are trying to like control things they started getting hurt some of them just they leave and they go lock themselves in their in their cars in the parking lot because they're like this is crazy we can't even leave we don't know what's going to happen but we can't be in there like these these people are just they've just out of control they actually called a code 1000 and this was made across all you know nearby um law enforcement meaning that any and all officers had to make their way to this venue to try to control it the backstage dressing area became a uh, like a triage unit where the, they had you know people that were were hurt in the riot and injured were being treated by by medics. Sixty five people were injured, including twenty five police officers. There was two hundred thousand dollars worth of damage to the venue, and Guns and Roses was banned 
from the city of St. Louis or the St. Louis metropolitan area. One of the security team was later interviewed about this, and he said, I've worked many, many shows. I've seen many things at many concerts, events. He said, this was the craziest 30 minutes of my life when he was actually part of, you know, trying to control this crowd. He said, we were, and this is the part I was telling you about, the perspective of who's responsible for something like this happening at a live show like that. He said, we were prepared for 20,000 people. We were not prepared for the one guy who was in control to take it out of control. He said, what you need to understand is he is the lead of this band. He is who 20,000 people came to see. He controls the audience. He controls the audience. And when he went out of control, they went out of control. I kind of get it. You know, if you've been to a concert, they do. It's that it's the energy that you, that's coming off that stage from that band, especially from the front men of the band or the front woman of the band. And uh, yeah, the crowd follows it for sure. So I get it. I, I get what he means. Guns N' Roses had to cancel their next two shows in Chicago and Kansas City because all their equipment was destroyed or um, stolen, and they had to replace that. And the employees of the Riverport Amphitheater said that they had to spend the whole month of July getting the venue back up and running. Was there a, a criminal prosecution? Yes, there was. Axel Rose was charged with four misdemeanor counts of assault and one misdemeanor count of property damage. The band seeing the writing on the wall is that the front man was going to be arrested, Remember, Axl Rose was on tour, though, and so he just went to the next state, so he was out of the jurisdiction of it. Then they were out overseas on the European tour, so they just continued to travel, and, you know, he was able to skate those charges for a while until he finally came back into the area. He was arrested a year later, and, uh, and then now we get to a trial. During the three-week trial, William Stump Stevenson who was the one that was hurt, testified. And he admitted that he did sneak in this camera, uh, a knife and a bottle of whiskey. But he said, you know, but that's not a reason for me to be attacked. He also said that, you know, I always did this. I always took pictures at concerts. He goes, I'm not a bootlegger. I'm not selling this stuff. I keep an album because these are the bands that I, that I love, that I follow. And I try to get these pictures. And then later on, I tried to get them autographed. You know, this is my, this is the thing that I do. Um, you know, it wasn't anything nefarious. It wasn't anything, you know, trying to rip off anybody. It was just for me, for myself. And yeah, I snuck it in. That was, I didn't follow the rules. That's true. But I don't think I should be, you know, assaulted because of it. The judge ruled that Axel Rose was not directly responsible for inciting the riot. However, he was charged with property damage and assault and battery and was uh, fined $50,000 and given two years of probation. So after the trial, (laughs) Stump Stevenson had his book of photographs and he was like, you know, I got a photograph of at that uh, concert and I want Axel to sign it. I think he owes me an autograph. And people are like, dude, you're got to be crazy. He's going to punch you in the face. (laughs) So at the end of the trial, they were out in the hallway or whatever of this courthouse. And of course, reporters are interviewing Axel Rose and here comes Stump Stevenson, and he stands there for a minute waiting, and then he basically says, I want you to sign this picture. And Axel looks at him like, dude, you got to be crazy. Like, what? 
And he goes, I think you owe me that. I'm not a bootlegger. I'm a fan. We are who put you where you are. We are the ones that buy your records. We are the one that buy your concert tickets. We put you where you are. I think you owe me an autograph. Wait in a second to see what he's going to do. Is he going to like punch me or (laughs) walk away? And he says, do you want it made out to Stump or Billy? (laughs) And he said, hey, whatever you're comfortable with, dude, it's it's all good, right? So he signed it. I mean, that's amazing. (laughs) Uh, Of course, Axl Rose and the band faced civil suits after the riot. And also Stump Stevenson had sought at least uh, $200,000 in damages for his back and, and also an ear injury, lost wages, medical bills. I didn't get um, a determination of that. It's one of those things that possibly got settled out of court, I would assume, maybe, if it did. That is Guns N' Roses and the Riverport Riot. Uh I hope you guys enjoyed that. I, I like those stories. Uh, it's crazy, crazy stuff. Rock and roll is a crazy life, man. <laughs> you know, it's it's a crazy life, but it's a, it's a it's an interesting story to tell. It's not the kind of life we live. Maybe unless unless you, if you're are you a rock star listening to my podcast, please hit me up. I'd love a ticket to whatever show. So uh, I hope you really like that. So next week we're going to do another bands gone wild Rocktober. And uh, I hope you'll be back with me then. Until then, you guys, thanks so much for everything. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for indulging me and some of my favorite things, true crime, telling stories, rock and roll, you know, live music, all of that and all of uh, this is a great life. And I would not, like Stump says, I would not be here without you. (laughs) So thank you so much and be good to one another.